Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We kick things off, though, with Brian Belsky, the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. And, and Brian, let's start with the news uh, how is the market interpreting what we've seen here? I guess it's just another layer of uh, uncertainty out of Washington. You know what it is? Uh, the hits just keep coming here on the radio, by the way. <laughs> so glad to be on. Nice um, to have you. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we are set into this reactive uh, type of mood where we're only looking at short-term things. I mean, we would continue to tell investors three words, be an investor. You can only control what you can control. And I think what you can control in this environment clearly, clearly has to be what you own as an investor. And so at the end of the day, you want to continue to own good assets. And the market goes down, you buy a little bit more. Market goes up, you you sell a little bit. So I think we've entered an era of fundamental investing again. Uh, we're picking stocks. We're playing themes. We're owning management. We're buying earnings and sales and cash flow. And we are trying as best we can to ignore all the noise. And today's just another day of noise. It's noisy. It's been noisy. It's noisy. My ears are hurting. Yeah. <laughs> my ears are hurting. My my fingers are hurting in terms of like trying to type out notes in ter- with respect to my BlackBerry. Yes, I work for Canadian Bank, so therefore standard of issue. Course, you have to. And so you know, at the end of the day, I think we're entering into this old guy market. We're a bunch of old guys. Where we actually understand the cycles of the seventies and eighties. Why is he looking at me? And, <laughs> come on, Tom. Uh, and I think we're going back to good old fashioned investing. You talk about themes and stocks. What what in specific are you looking at? right now well you know you think about looking at stocks from a from a broader perspective on uh think about this we want you to own stocks within industries industries within sectors i think sector positioning is going to be less important it's going to be more about picking stocks and playing specific themes so for instance within financials we love scalable business models like the big banks in canada the big banks in the u.s those areas that have several different types of divisions that are able to grow uh, through time, and not just the regional banks or not just the insurance companies. Clearly, you should mm-hmm. own some regional banks with respect to your financial portfolio, but we think the major play with respect to the secular drive and deregulation of the financial services industry is going to be all about the big banks. Brian Belsky with us, BMO Capital Markets. We'll ask him about the Falcons here in a moment. So I look, Brian, within your bull market call, Danaher out today with earnings. I'm just picking on DHR, but, you know, great company. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Over the last 10 years, they've made 12.8% per year year which is only you, you can't a shame? you can't make money in stocks no you can't uh, but but within that and down the income statement help our audience revenues trump operating income trump the fact is it's about making cash flow what part of the dynamic of cash flow generation are you most focused on now free cash flow yields are are and will continue to be we think the key the key key metric in terms of how companies are going to grow and you know the management of cash and what they do with that cash whether or not they're going to 
spend that on on capex we've seen so much cash flow go into things like uh, paying and increasing dividends we think that's a major major secular trend in terms of dividend growth on the equity side but cash flow remember generates earnings tom and at the end of the day we're entering a, a period where the denominator is going to be the most important part of of valuation going forward. What do you forward. mean by that? Come on, it's math. It's way too much it's a math. math thing. You know, you got a price and an earnings. You know, the earnings you a price is what and matters. A cash flow. Earnings, sales, cash okay. flow, book value. That's what matters. Uh, I'm impressed you're having a coffee and a Diet Mountain Dew. Listen, Diet Mountain Dew and Diet Mountain Dew Nectar of the Gods. Before I go to Europe, which I was two weeks ago, I I literally before I jump on the plane, grab like three or four Diet Mountain Dews and import them. Import them. Uh, I'm glad you bring up Europe. You've just been there, as you said, and uh, in your most recent note, you write most investors in Europe believe little or nothing in terms of legislation will get done here Correct. in Washington. Uh, help us understand that perspective. Should should we be more in tune with it? No, <laughs> no. You think you think we will see some developments? Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, much of the get nothing done mantra is what's happened to government the last fifteen to twenty years, where you've had split governments and you hear this whole notion gridlock is good and things like that. You know, at the uh, uh, the European investor, and we have been seeing and visiting our European clients on the institutional side for almost twenty years. And the takeaway that I would give you overall, the overarching takeaway, is that disillusioned. I mean, this is the most negative I've ever heard them and seen them in interactions with respect to meetings in almost 20 years. They don't like America. They don't like our policies. They don't like our president. And we think that they are basing their investment decisions more on emotion versus analysis. And they're going to miss the boat again. They're going to miss the boat again. Uh, John Micklethwaite will be in conversation with Jeffrey Immel tomorrow. Let's look at GE as a much bigger Danner, if you would. $180 billion GE capital a million years ago. They're now down to a, a much lesser revenue. They go from $180 billion down to $115 billion. That's a big drop in revenue over five, six, seven uh, years. Operating income didn't drop no. nearly as much. And, again, this goes back to free cash flow it does, Tom. generation. Yeah, I mean – Full disclosure, we own both Danaher and GE and the products that we manage uh, for our great BMO uh, brokers up in Canada. Uh, but at the end of the day, GE is, is reinventing themselves as an industrial machine. I mean, it was a big conglomerate. We know what happened in the 80s and 90s with respect to what their strategy was. Now, Mr. Emmel is clearly redefining the country. When I talk to people about GE... Think about the turbines and things like that. They've got single-digit, high single-digit dividend growth, five-year dividend growth with all the turmoil up 9%. I believe that's 400 basis points above nominal GDP. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Mr. Umelt's supposed to do, right? Correct. He's doing his job. He's doing his job, and we think that's the mantra for corporate America. I mean, Jeff, Mr. Emmelt's been a survivor through what we've seen a lot of turnover on the CEO side and, and from a corporate perspective in terms of how he's trying to grow this company and how he's trying to redefine the company. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fundamental investing. That's the kind of management that you want to see and back with respect to an investment longer term. What does what you see at GE tell you or what could it portend for industrials as a whole? It's a great question. You know, we've been bullish on industrials. Great, wait, I never have a great question. That's because I like the Patriots. Yeah, you got to. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Hopefully, um, you know, at the end of the day, you want you want to buy industrials when when the operating performance of the sector is beginning to accelerate, and that's what we're seeing with respect to return on assets, free cash flow yields, return on equity. And so, if you look at the industrial sector from a longer term perspective, like fifty years, mm-hmm. it's exactly a neutral sector. You want to try to buy on a relative performance basis. You want to try to 
buy the sector when fundamentals are accelerating. In where the fundamentals are accelerating most are those areas that are more focused on domestic domestic issues, domestic growth. So those companies with 30% or less revenue from international sources are is where we're seeing a massive acceleration in return on equity, return on assets. Peg ratios are much more attractive. You can ask about the Super Bowl now, Tom. I'm ignorant about the Atlanta Falcons. Do they have a chance? You're a, you're one of our big football guys. Well, I would tell you they that watch you, every game. You know they suffered. They suffered. Falcons suffered last year through a lot of 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 injuries and things like that. They're very well coached. Um, Matt Ryan had a wonderful year uh, at the quarterback side. You know, uh, my my team member that works for me here. In New York City, huge Jets fan, so you know, I We're can't. We're sorry. I know. He's a contrarian investor. No, um, you know, I think you know. At the end of the day, if Tom Brady and Belichick win the Super Bowl, let's kind of push it all aside, saying they are the greatest team that we've seen in the history of the NFL. Yeah. Well, let's just move past that and find another team after okay. this. Uh, David Harrow's in Chicago, medicated over the Packers. <laughs> the Packers. Thank you for that Super Bowl update. We'll do a little bit of have fun with it, folks. Into the uh, game this week. Have you ordered your platter yet, David Gurr? Are you uh, doing some kale-laced, holistic, artisanal platter in Brooklyn? Free-range uh, chicken wings. Free-range uh, buffalo. <laughs> Why did I know that? <laughs> Dara Meyer with us with HSBC. Dara, let's rip up the script here. Let's define for our audience, I'll get it out, what is a currency manipulator and is exploitation different than manipulation? Uh, Not very different. I mean, I think the easiest way to think of a currency manipulator is is someone who is actively changing the price of their currency to extract some kind of economic advantage. Generally, to be honest, of course, the expectation is is to get your currency weaker, uh, to to get extra competitiveness. But, you know, we've had other types of manipulation. Uh, Plenty of central banks intervene to reduce volatility in their currency. Uh, to prevent excessive um, depreciations. You've seen it in Mexico. So there's, there's lots of forms, but obviously the one that the Trump administration is fixated on is the idea that there is this underlying mispricing of some of the big currencies in the world that is putting the US at a disadvantage because it's making the stronger or the dollar too strong. As he said, uh, Trump said, it's killing us. I mean, that's his characterization, at least. On that note, Tom alludes to this uh, interview with Peter Navarro in the FT. Peter Navarro, the head of the new trade council, Donald Trump's trade council. There's a line at the end of that article in the FT. He says uh, he's not concerned about the possibility of a stronger dollar and its impact on U.S. exports. I worry about the actual impact America's trade deficit and goods is having on our rates of economic growth and income growth. How do you navigate the lack of unanimity in this administration? You have Stephen Mnuchin on Capitol Hill uh, saying that he doesn't share Donald Trump's concern uh, with the strong dollar. Donald Trump saying he wants a weaker dollar. Now you have Peter <laughs> Navarro here making this commentary on the strong dollar as well. Is the lack of unanimity problematic to you in the FX space? Uh, it is, in, in a way, because what it's, it's fostering is, in, in a world of a headline reaction kind of mentality, it's, well, who speaks next? Because really, that's what's going to color your reaction. You know, the, you know, as Tom described, this is a relatively small move in Eurodollar, but of course, you're obliged to react to the latest sure. headline. And the difficulty you have is, do you want to hold that position do you have any conviction now in being long euro dollar? No, you've absolutely none because you don't know the next guy's going to stand up and say the very opposite kind of sentiment. So this is a difficulty. And also, to be honest, to say that you know we're worried about what the existing trade deficit means for growth. You know, growth is determined by the shift in the trade deficit. You know, is it a drag? Is is that change going to be a drag or, or a boost? 
But look, it is a talking point. And what's unusual about this administration is the president is talking about the dollar. It used to be the Treasury's game. Um, he's tweeting about it, please. Oh, he's tweeting about everything. But, you know, you know, for it to come in on the dollar, I, that's pretty unprecedented. Obama talked about it reportedly very briefly. I remember at a summit back in France. And then the White House had to come out and say, no, he didn't talk about the dollar. Mm. He's talking about something entirely different. Uh, you say you could see recovery in the euro in the, the second quarter. What leads you to that conclusion? Uh, well, that is a function of European politics, yeah. which, of course, are, are slightly sidelined at the moment amid all the US politics, but I think it'll get renewed traction. If we get through the Dutch election, if the French elections as well, again, in, the, in, in that second quarter, if, if they deliver mainstream results, which I think is the, still the most likely outcome, then some of the political discount that I think is going to creep into the price over the next couple of months will have to come back out. I mean, I think we can go as low as euro dollar 101 you know, before we get the, the true revival uh, higher in euro dollar. Politics still the driver very much so, it sounds like, uh, in Europe. Uh, walk us through what happened with the Bank of Japan last night. An, an, unex- an, an expected outcome here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what is that, what is that portend? Well, they must be pretty happy, I would say, on, on some levels, yeah. because, you know, this time last year, it was a fight for their credibility in terms of, are they impotent in terms of policy delivery? Are they making the right choices and move to negative interest rates? This time around, it's like, well, okay, the yield curve still seems to be working. Last week, they upped their bond purchases to try and reinforce the idea they want to cap yields um, on the 10-year. So, you know, they've arrived today reasonably happy about credibility. Of course, what they're not happy about is inflation, uh, which still remains very far off target. And I, I remember seeing a report last week that said, what little inflation there is, is the wrong type. You know, yeah. not even getting the right type of inflation. That's a concern. Yeah. Uh, 20 seconds is all we got. We'll get you back there. Do you still reaffirm a weaker pound sterling? Yeah, it's still or a high conviction. Outlier call? We actually just put a trade on yesterday to sell cable. We've got a, a short-term target of 120, and we've got a year-end target of 110. So uh, Year-end 110, 110, end of 2017. Yep. That, folks, is one of the great outlier calls. I think our, our uh, Anthony from Sparta... I think he just loaded up on that trade. He did it like in the triple I leverage. I saw him reach for the smart He's button. got a triple <laughs> leverage FX fund within his 401k. I think he just loaded the phone. Speaking to his broker. Dar, go out. Go, think, get, out, get out of here. That's an outlier call, Dar Meyer, with HSBC. Thank you so much. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. James Trevitas, who's appeared with us uh, many times. Admiral, good morning. How are you doing today, Tom? Well, I think I'm okay. Mike Allen has a must-read note out of Washington, and it's the first reporting I've seen that Secretary Tillerson is baffled and General Mattis is, quote-unquote, incensed over what we've observed. (laughs) Tell me how an admiral or a general steamed in the academic path of Stravitas or Mattis responds to mere civilians playing at government. Well, you know, when I was the Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, Tom, occasionally things would happen back in Washington that would kind of light you up, and you would go back and discuss it and push back a little bit. But I tell you, the the general I'm really concerned about is General John Kelly. Why is that? Department of Homeland Security. 
because he was evidently cut out of the pattern on this executive order. It came out with uh, almost no notice to his department. It's his responsibility to implement it. Those are his border and TSA agents who are dealing with the public. And no early consultation, no voice in the process. If I were General Kelly, I'd be calling the chief of staff in the White House and saying, if you ever do that again, I'm out of here. General Mattis is incensed because of the impact it has on brave Iraqi translators who are now banned from coming to this country, as well as the effect it has on jihadis. So I think kind of the same reaction out of General Mattis. Yeah, fascinating story by Damien Paletta in the Wall Street Journal today, looking at that tension between the White House and John Kelly at uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Just want to read one uh, line from that piece, if I could. Uh, this is all centering on the pick of who is going to be his deputy, the White House pushing for Chris Kobach, who's the Secretary of State, I believe, in Kansas. Ultimately, they picked yes. Elaine Duke, but an, an incredible line here. The White House tried to persuade Mr. Kelly to accept Mr. Kobach as his deputy secretary, but Mr. Kelly wanted to go a different route, picking someone with a background in Homeland Security, I'm people said. <laughs> <laughs> what a thought. It, 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 yeah. it begs a question here, uh, Admiral, that being, what's happening here with picking deputies in, in these departments? We look at the State Department, it's so many vacancies. This has got to be yeah. worrisome for a guy like you. It's totally worrisome. And I am, as I've said before, I'm encouraged by the high-level picks, General Kelly, General Mattis, Rex Tillerson, Dan, Senator Dan Coates at DNI. These are good choices. But the second and third tier is where the rubber meets the road. And so far, we're not getting good visibility. And I suspect there's a lot of what you saw at DHS, which is a political filter being put on these folks. And that's understandable up to a point. But in these departments that deal with our national security, we have got to choose competence over political bona fides. We've talked to you about the, the State Department job by all accounts. You talked to the president about the, the State mm -hmm. Department job. If you were Rex Tillerson right now, watching all of this uh, unfold, the, the retirement of these uh, career civil servants, mm. uh, forced retirements of these, these career civil servants, you see this disarray. What's he thinking at this point? I've, I've got to imagine that a guy who headed a huge multinational corporation probably wanted to come in and make changes of his own accord. What's happening here? Exactly that. He is going to want to select uh, deputy and undersecretaries, the next tier down, who have serious diplomatic experience. I think he'd be very well served to select a career diplomat as his deputy and not simply take whatever the White House is pushing on him at this point. And I, I would suggest someone like Ambassador Bill Burns, Ambassador Nick Burns. We've got a, 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 a raft of these outstanding folks who could come in and help Secretary Tillerson uh, right. learn this new culture. Uh, Admiral, there's, there's General Langill, General Goldfein, some lightweight admiral named Richardson, General Neller, General Millig, General Selva, and a guy named Dunford on top of the food chain at the yeah. Joint Chiefs of Staff. You and I go back to 86 and the monumental Goldwater-Nichols reorganization of the competency of our military. How do you take Dunford and what he represents with Selva, Millie, Neller, Richardson, Goldfine, etc.? How do you take him off the NSC? It's inconceivable to me. And by the way, I have to point out for you, Tom, since you love the academic pedigrees, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Joe Dunford, is a graduate of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, oh, God, where I am the dean so, today. Take a lap. Yeah. Very good. While you, yeah, make, so a, while you make a note, he's down to midshipmen. Okay. That he would be <clears> taken <throat> off the principal's committee or not invited to all the meetings. I suspect uh, 
that General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, had a very short and sharp conversation with the White House Chief of Staff after that announcement and said, General Dunford will be attending all principal committee meetings with me. And you might have noticed Sean Spicer at the podium yesterday saying, oh, of course, General Dunford is invited to every meeting. Mm -hmm. Mattis will make sure he comes. He's got to be there. You need that voice of unbiased, unpolitical experience in that principal's committee. A question that didn't come up in that press briefing yesterday was a basic one. That is, why is Steve Bannon going to be uh, at these meetings? And, and maybe you can help us understand what these meetings are for. We look back on George W. Bush's presidency. He would not allow Karl Rove in the room. Exactly. What these meetings are not about is, gee, let's think about this decision through the prism of domestic politics. And so to bring folks uh, with that bent into the room uh, kind of shapes the discussion in ways that I think are deleterious to our national security. These ought to be meetings of experts to lay out options in front of the president and have a discussion without fear or favor as to the politics of the day. So I don't think it's appropriate to have someone like Steve Bannon uh, in that room. I'm like to switch gears here and we're going to we're very generous of the airboat to be with us for two blocks today. It is a small number, 5,896 self-identified Muslims out of 2.2 million active and reserve duty members. It's a minority. How did you as a command officer in the Middle East with NATO and with your other duties, including the, you know, the tugboat, your first commission out of uh, Annapolis, how, how do you deal with religion on a day-to-day basis in the Navy? Well, first and foremost, you have to look at those Muslims who are serving on active duty as uh, assets. They have a feel for the culture. They have a feel often for the languages, given their individual backgrounds. And you have to be not only respectful of their religious freedom, because that's part of what we're fighting for, but also you have to think about how can I leverage their connectivity. And I'll tell you where we did this very effectively under my command in Afghanistan was with uh, Turkish NATO troops, who are obviously overwhelmingly Muslim. We found that they were capable of moving and operating in that Afghan Muslim society very effectively. We can do the same with our U.S. Muslim population, but we can't do it if we alienate them through ill-thought-out travel bans like we saw a brought forward over the last couple of days. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people have spoken out about this, uh, reporters as well as folks in the armed services. This has taken a long time to get translators uh, visas to come to, to the U.S. Are you disappointed with that, how long it's taken? I am. Uh, we have not kept faith with uh, terrific people. And every time I went both to Iraq and Afghanistan, I had outstanding translators, and they had been promised at the end of the day that they would come to the United States. And I think some have, but it's been a long uh, bureaucratic process. Hey, having said all that, I want to stipulate we want to protect the country. We want to conduct serious vetting. On the other hand, we don't want to just slam the door arbitrarily, and that's how this travel ban felt. We'll come back here, but I have a quick question for you here. I learned that the uh, the pick to be Navy secretary is a former Army captain. you got to react to that. Well, maybe it'll help <laughs> West Point in the football games. Uh, I know, uh, I know uh, Secretary Desig knit Philip Bilden very well. He's an excellent choice, deep experience in Asia, understands the world, business. And by the way, he has two sons who are at the 
U.S. Naval Academy. Oh, thank God for that. I thought you were going to say the Fletcher School. Another busy day at the White House here, the second week uh, in the White House for President Trump, Admiral. And uh, at 12.30 p.m. today uh, in the presidential dining room, the president will sit down with Mayor Rudy Giuliani, his cybersecurity advisor. I know you've thought a lot about, care a lot about cybersecurity. What do you suggest should be at the top of the agenda for these two gentlemen today? I'll give you three things they should uh, try and focus on immediately. One is uh, dividing U.S. Cybersecurity Command from the National Security Agency. Those two are combined at the moment. So you have the military and the intel function together. That's inefficient. It's a quick win, and it ought to happen. Number two, we ought to work on the interagency and bring together all the disparate cyber voices today, DHS, FBI, DOJ, DOD. It's a soup of acronyms are all working at cross-purposes on cyber. And number three, and most importantly, they ought to sketch out a plan. And here's a businessman. Uh, they, they ought to sketch out a plan for business, private-public cooperation. Government will not solve this. So there's a tactical and operational and a strategic thing they should think about today. How hard is it going to be for this administration to move forward on cybersecurity while there's still the whirl of activity surrounding what happened in the election on, on Capitol Hill? going to be very difficult. And cyber, broadly, this is the classic case of building the airplane while you're flying it. You you don't want to do anything that crashes the system. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to deal with this political overlay that came into it because of the Russian activity, their, frankly, their attack on our democratic process. So somehow we've got to separate that issue, investigate it, understand it from the larger strategic imperative of securing our networks. Admiral Stravitas, you did a tour in Miami. You were head of a U.S. Southern Command. You know the border well. We've had this conversation uh, much more loudly over the past week than we have in the past about building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. How much of a difference would a fortification like that make? It will not uh, change uh, the general flow of migration, which, by the way, as I'm sure you know, these days more people are going south than are coming north uh, to Mexico. Um, does, that, does, that look, include, you, you, does that include graduates of the liberal Tufts University uh. of Boston? <laughs> right. They're all moving. You know, they're mostly, Tom, they're going to Canada, but they okay. are, in fact, going to Mexico. Um, listen, here's a news flash: You can build a 100-foot wall. And you look at it from Mexico, and right to the left of it, I'm an admiral, there's an ocean. So if people really want to go, they'll go around it at sea, they'll tunnel under it the way the cartels are doing, or they'll fly drones over it to move product. So, yes, we have to control our border, but a simple solution like build a big wall is not it. It's got to be a combination. There are portions where you do need a wall. Other places, fences are fine. Other places, surveillance is good, can be on foot, can be drone. You need a combination of things to secure the border. And then long term, you need a strong relationship with Mexico. That's, in the end, how we'll secure that border. So simply building a wall, both symbolically, tactically, and strategically, I don't think will succeed. We're running out of time. Would you please explain the Stravitas approach that this administration should, should take with Mr. Putin of Russia? I, I was flabbergasted yeah. that in the phone call Saturday, I don't believe Ukraine came up. 
Which should I That's be surprised? That's shocking. I, I think they defaulted to the lowest common denominator of cooperation, which I guess is okay for an initial call, and that is the fight against the Islamic State. We can both agree on that. Broadly speaking, Tom, what we should say to Mr. Putin is, look, we're going to have areas of significant disagreement with you where we will confront you. Ukraine is one of them. Syria, where he supports a war criminal, is another. Cyber attacks is a third. But we ought to also say to Putin, we'll confront you where we must, but let's yeah. find some zones yeah. where we can cooperate. And there are plenty. De- so it's got to be a mixed message. Dean and Admiral, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Admiral Stavidis, uh, of course, decades of service with the United States Navy. David Gurr and Tom Keenan, New York, now joining us, um, a, a gentleman who's had a profound influence on the immigration dialogue over the last 10 days, David Beer of Cato Institute. Uh, David Beer, I want David Gurr to speak to you, but very quickly here, what will you presume to see in the appeals court process, the appeals court process um, after these lesser courts act? Well, you're going to see it probably uh split decision on some of these issues, but uh, a lot of them are, are now m- mute because of uh, the releases and the changes in policy that we've seen from the Trump administration. Um, so, uh, you know, we might, uh, might have all of these cases resolved by the time uh, an appeals court gets to hear them. What do you think is, is, is the strongest legal argument against what we uh, saw put in place here over the, the weekend? You cite the Immigration Act of 1965. Uh, is that the strongest case? Does it rest on that? I think so. Uh, I think the constitutional challenges are going to be very difficult because the uh, state of constitutional law, the Supreme Court has held that really the Bill of Rights does not apply uh, to most immigration decisions. And so the question will really depend on whether the president has the legal authority to carry out these actions via executive order. And like you said, I, I cite the Immigration Act of 1965, which uh, amended the 1952 law that gives the president discretion to uh, ban certain groups of uh, foreign-born people. And uh, that law says pretty unequivocally that you cannot discriminate based on national origin against immigrants uh, who are coming to the United States to live in it permanently. It's been interesting to watch the fallout from this executive action, the protests at the airports over the weekend, the response uh, slowly but surely from from members of of Congress. What does this say broadly about immigration reform in Washington, D.C.? A couple years back, there was a robust conversation about what immigration reform would look like. It was being driven by the Congress. Here you have the uh, executive branch taking the the lead, rightly or or, or wrongly, and the courts, I guess, will will, uh, weigh in on that shortly. Uh, What does it say about where immigration reform is headed, where that conversation is headed? I mean, I think it really shows even broader than just uh, immigration reform, that we're seeing this trend toward executive power that is just so expansive that uh, it's making Congress almost irrelevant. Uh, all of these dramatic policy changes being implemented both by President Obama, uh, what he attempted to do, court yeah. shut him down on that, uh, which was a positive development in my pers- from my view. 
But uh, now we're seeing the uh, Trump administration go the same direction. And, uh, you know, we've seen it in almost every other area, President Obama and President Trump both doing expansive executive orders and action. David, my amateur take, and please uh, inform us, is that this reads like history. There were previous immigration themes. There was 1952 or whatever it was. Then there was 1965 with Senator Hart and uh, Representative Emanuel Seller. And basically they said excluding Asia and Africa is not the calculus we're going to use in immigration. So then we move forward this, this, 1990, et cetera. Well, it's 2017. Do you presume that a legislature can move immigration back to 1952? A legislature, meaning Congress? Yes. Congress could certainly do that if they— if they wanted to uh, go back to that type of discriminatory system, they could. Um, but I contend that it's it's illegal for the president to override that 1965 act, which was mm-hmm. all about it was full. Its only intent was to create an unbiased immigration right. system where every country has an equal shot at the immigration. Quota Do you see any? Criti- this is a critical question. Do you see any indication? from a Republican Senate and a Republican House that w- they would like to turn the clock from 1965 back to 1952? There have been uh, disturbing signs that a significant portion of the Republican conference is on board with this uh, ban. Now, the ban itself is uh, is stated to be at least 90 days long. Now, uh, if that remains true and he reopens immigration to these countries after 90 days, then it will not be seen as as big of a deal. But you have to understand that this executive order also claims the authority to make this permanent. And so uh, we'll see what happens after 90 days. But uh, it oh. certainly would be turning the clock back if it remains in effect. David Beer, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. He is an immigration policy analyst at yeah. the Cato Institute. And, Tom, this will be just fascinating to see yeah, play out. There were protests last night. I mean, it shows no signs of, of stopping here, people who were opposed to this measure by, by the president. I'm in the Gura timeout chair. I cut in there with that final question. No. <laughs> but I thought it was really – I mean, that's – he framed that beautifully. Yeah, he It's did. like LBJ, 1965, and do you want to go back to Eisenhower, 52, or almost Truman? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't have any wisdom on this. That was great. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot. I did as well. And yeah. uh, it'll be we'll interesting do this again. again to see this shake out for sure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.